whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles, and warm woolen mittens. Brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. Cream colored ponies and crisp apple strudels. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Rancid Taco Movie Review Podcast. I'm Skylar Sanders here with Dr. Gonzo himself, Mason Weir. Tonight, we will do a little fear and loathing in Las Vegas. Ah, yes, a childhood classic. You be the fear and I'll be the loathing. All right, baby. Fear and Loathing came out in 1998. And got 49% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oof, just a shade under 50. Well, we know how the audience feels about this, I guess. Wah, wah. Wah, wah. My sister told me once that this was the worst movie she'd ever seen. <laughs> I could see why, you wouldn't, why people wouldn't like this movie. But at, having watched it over 100 times, I know why it's brilliant. You think you've seen it 100 times? I don't know about 100, but definitely above 50. Yeah, I'd say I've seen the first 20 or 30 minutes above 50 times, but it's a movie that I've fallen asleep to or you know lost interest in many times. But the beginning, man, is so good. It just hooks me in every time. Yeah, it's it's all good for its own purposes, but it is uh, winding and it's not exactly uh, any direct story is happening. So it's very stop and start. You're here, you're there. What's going on? I don't understand what's happening. Like the first few times you watch it, it has the potential for you to just be lost the entire time. There's almost no story. There's very little character development. There's no real message. There's kind of a message, but not really. It's kind of just a blur, but somehow yeah. you're right. It's, it's a great movie. I love this movie. Yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. And I've done the same thing. I've put it on, fallen asleep to it so many times that I can't even count. But it does have, the book certainly has a bit more of a message uh, and the movie taps into it for maybe a couple scenes, but for the most part, it's uh, definitely good for what it's worth, but the book is a little bit different of a ride. The book's not for everyone either, and the author of the book, I'd say this is his masterpiece, Hunter S. Thompson. Welcome he, to the podcast, Hunter Thompson! Yeah, welcome to the podcast, Hunter. I don't know how special Hunter was, but man, he was an interesting guy, I'll say that. Well, I mean, I'll say this. Uh, he changed writing in America quite a bit. And he did it basically through journalism, which is the weirdest way to do it. So his journalism, I think somebody described it. On, he did the fear and loathing on the campaign trail where he followed the McGovern campaign around the whole time during the McGovern-Nixon election. And he covered these reporters. And he said, unlike most reporters who are here to build bridges and gain access to people and create bonds. I have no uh, intention of ever coming back. So I'm free to, to burn every bridge and break every bond I make. <laughs> so he, he kind of tells it from a, uh, a wild perspective. And the way that, the way that he writes is just his voice comes through so well in his writing, which is something that I've always admired. Yeah. I've read quite a few of his books. I can't say that they're among my all time favorite books, but they're quick reads and they're strange, weird reads. I've always liked weird, so 
it works out well for me. And his journalism style is especially fun. Oh, what I, the quote I was going to say was somebody once said about him, he's the most honest but least factual journalist he's ever read. read, yeah. uh, read. <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah, like his his stories are, are like get to the truth of what's happening, but in this weird, wild, uh, unfactual way, sort of. Well, Hunter himself appears in this movie, and he had a big role in producing and getting the movie made. Mm-hmm. And he was happy with the finished product, I think. Yeah. Though not everyone was. And I read some of the backstage details on this. Terry Gilliam, our old friend, welcome back as well. Man, he keeps getting on the podcast. He's on again. And from what I what I can tell, Terry Gilliam seems like he's really hard to work with. Apparently. <laughs> he's got problems with producers and and backstage stuff every single movie. He's he's fighting yeah. with people every time. Yeah, and I don't I don't know much about Terry Gilliam to defend him or persecute him, but uh yeah, he just seems to have issues with everybody. I read on this on this movie, he had to share writing credits with somebody and he didn't like that. So he burned his Writers Guild card at like a book signing or something. And in public in protest, he did that. Nice. Grow up, Terry. Grow up, Terry. Jesus. But he did collaborate with Hunter Thompson to make this film. And we can get started with the cast since Hunter's part of the cast here. Mm-hmm. Leading the way, we have our old pal. Welcome back again. Johnny Depp. Yeah, the uncanceled Johnny Depp. He's back. Back he's, from the grave. He's back for us as well. We had another Johnny movie with Donnie Brasco as well as Don Juan DeMarco. Interesting to me, I read that Jack Nicholson and Marlon Brando were considered for the roles of the two main characters in this. Of Dr. Gonzo, yeah, yeah. Brando? Yeah. What? Of course, dude. Who else could play weird better than Brando? Well, I also read that Dan Aykroyd and Jim Belushi were among consideration as well. Well, have you ever seen Where the Buffalo Roams with uh, John Belushi? Or not John Belushi, Bill, but uh, Bill, Murray. Bill Murray. Yeah, sorry, Bill Murray. No, I've never seen it. It's uh, it's not really a great movie, but his impersonation of, of Hunter Thompson, if you like Hunter Thompson, it's a good movie to watch. But it's not exactly a great movie. The guy that plays uh, Oscar Acosta, Acosta, who is Dr. Gonzo, What's his, oh, what's his name? What's the dad from Everybody Loves Raymond? Uh, oh, man. Peter Boyle. It's the same yeah, movie he, where the Buffalo Rome is the same thing? Well, there's there's other stories. It's him and Oscar Acosta. I'm going to Swayze it up real quick. Yeah, don't Swayze that. That's a completely Swayze, different movie. I'm Swayzing Peter Boyle. Yeah, it's Peter Boyle. Okay, he plays he plays him. Uh, yeah, so it's it's... A completely different movie, but there's more stories that Hunter Thompson wrote about Oscar Acosta. Acosta. So, who was who was the basis for the character of Doctor Gonzo? Oh, the next character we're about to bring up. Yeah, we're still on. We're still on Raoul Duke here as as Johnny Depp. I wanted to say something very important. Well, say it then. Keanu Reeves was also considered for this role. <laughs> what role wasn't Keanu Reeves considered for? Actually, I don't know if that's true. I just wanted to continue that bit. Oh, okay. Keanu Reeves being considered but refused for a role. Could you I imagine will... how shitty this movie would have been with Keanu Reeves oh, as God. Hunter Thompson? <laughs> Every movie we say that, too, we're like, oh, God, this would have been horrible if Keanu Reeves would have done it. Johnny Depp kills it, though. I will say that. He's he's a pretty good oh, yeah. Raoul Duke. Yeah, I can't imagine getting a better one. Well, and now we can move on to 
Dr. Gonzo, played in this by the Hispanic Brad Pitt. Yes. Benicio Del Toro. It's amazing. Their similarities are, are amazing. Benicio was also in The Fan, Usual Suspects, Traffic, and 21 Grams. He won, or he was nominated for awards for those movies. He was in Snatch with Brad Pitt. That's interesting. Yeah, that was good. And he gained 45 pounds for this role in nine weeks. Yeah, I, I remember reading something about it. He said, like, at the beginning, he was, like, trying to eat a high-protein diet and and just kind of not work out as much. And then it just deteriorated to the point where he was just eating, like, like 10 jelly donuts a day. I mean, he's obviously... That did it. <laughs> it, it definitely works out. If you eat that many donuts, you're going to get fat. Yeah. And it works out perfectly because... He's pretty handsome naturally, obviously, if we're calling him the Hispanic Brad Pitt. But he mm-hmm. is such a fat, disgusting slob in this movie. Oh, Just yeah. Just the most grotesque and foul creature on the earth. And, like, constantly throwing up, and there's puke all over his face and beard and mustache and, like... Dribbling yeah. down his face, like, spit and spittle yeah. and slime, snot and all that, yeah. But disgusting. you can still see that he's a good-looking guy, like, certain scenes. He hides it pretty well. It looks like he's, like, sw- at one point he's in this bath water and it's like dirty like piss oh yeah oh, okay. i found myself thinking i wonder if he pissed the tub for that scene <laughs> to get into character might have might have i would have i would have i would have uh did you have anything else to say about dr gonzo though the character that benicio plays nope he does a good job and those are the two main characters but this movie is just absolutely littered with cameo appearances some bigger than others and mm-hmm. the bigger ones I'll mention now, there's Toby Maguire, probably the only time he's going to be on this podcast, I think. <laughs> uh, we, don't was, plan, we don't plan on doing any of the Spider-Mans, uh, do we? No, he was in the early 2000s Spider-Mans. He was in Seabiscuit. Did you ever see that? Um, no. About the racehorse? Yeah, I, know, I, I remember it, but I didn't see it. It was okay. He was also in Brothers. He's all right. I'm not against Toby. He's, he's okay. Yeah, I'm not impressed by much of his stuff. I'll say that. Then we have the princess of goth, not the queen. That, that goes oh. to uh, Winona. But the princess of goth, Christina Ricci. Oh, another, another crush of mine. You she like her? Just, yeah, she's absolutely cute as hell. Yeah, she's got a, she is a goth little, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. You know, I literally bumped into her one time. Really? You like bumped, like bumped into, into her? her? Literally, yeah, literally. I, uh, I was working as an extra on the show Pan Am. And I was uh, on set, and they scooted us all off to the side of the set, and she was one of the main actresses in that. And they, like, scooted us all over in a hurry, and I, like, backed up and literally bumped in, turned around, like, oh, oh I'm, excuse me. And Did yeah. she shoot you a look, like, don't ever fucking touch me again? She didn't say anything to me. She didn't, like, acknowledge my existence. <laughs> she, didn't, she didn't say hello. She didn't say, sorry, no problem, anything like that. She was just, like, in her head, I could hear her thinking, fucking extra. Yeah, yeah, that she probably was. Yeah, <laughs> that's a fun little story there. I like that. Yeah, uh, Christina Ricci was in the Adams Family, obviously. Casper, now and then, Sleepy Hollow, Monster, Black Snake Moan was a cool one. That she oh was god, she was so sexy in that. But moving past him to an actor I don't really like as much, but he's got a very distinguished look. Gary Busey. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not a huge Gary Busey fan as far as acting goes, but I do know that he's like a strange offbeat guy and he has this Hollywood persona of just being super weird. So I like that about him. Yeah, he's, I, I wrote that down too. Weird dude. That, yeah. That's what, what my notes say about him. 
I think one time he says that he had a near death experience and saw heaven or something like I don't remember what it was. It was something really off the wall that you wouldn't expect to hear. Yeah, I don't know. Sounds like a Gary Busey thing though. I did like him in Rookie of the Year as well. Uh, oh, and um, Point Break, I like him in that. Yeah, it says he was in Black Sheep, but I don't remember him in that one. It's been a while since I've seen that, though. Yeah, I don't recall that. Uh, so moving past Gary Busey, I just wanted to point this one out because she is a certified gilf, and that is Ellen Barkin, who plays the waitress oh. at the uh, North Vegas Cafe. She's a gilf, huh? Oh, my God. Look her up, dude. She's like 67 years old or almost 70 years old. She's a total dime piece. Still stunning? Still stunning. Yeah, she's in this show now called The Animal Kingdom or something like that. She's always in a bikini around the pool, and she just looks great. All right. Better better now. She looks better now than she did in this movie, I think. Yeah, but she's definitely made up to look like a kind of busted down waitress in this movie. So I don't think I don't think they're trying to make her look hot. But she does look like she's got a decent body. That's more of a Swayze worthy. Should I Swayze some pictures right now, or like? Yeah, I I feel like it wouldn't be a bad thing if you did. (laughs) I'll I'll wait. I'll I'll wait till after the show. (laughs) I'd like to get your two cents on it, but yeah, okay. All right. Well, since you since you want me to look at it so bad, uh, Ellen Barkin. Oh, Silver Fox. She still has a stunning body, that's for sure. Silver Stiffy for Ellen. Yeah. Let's go to the images part. Yeah, she's looking pretty, pretty top-notch for that uh, that age. Yeah, almost 70 years old. Just blessed with uh, the fountain of youth. Well, that's a good sign, man. I knew we'd agree on that, and it's going to be smooth sailing here on out. Well, that's the podcast, I think. That's right. We'll never argue again. Never again. Never again. Um, moving past Ellen Barkin, we'll go to another certified MILF, I guess. Cameron Diaz. Yeah. I actually don't know if she's a mom, but she probably is by now. I don't know, but she's hot. In the 90s, she was in Charlie's Angels, The Mask, Shrek, Gangs of New York, The Sweetest Thing. Mm-hmm. And a lot of big movies in the 90s and not, not anything after that in the 2000s that I know of. I, I typically like her, too. Bad Teacher was one that she was in that was good. I didn't see that. Her and Mila Kunis. Well, I like Mila Kunis. Oh, yeah. And then the last one that I have an actual note for is Catherine Helmond. Welcome back to the podcast. An old friend of ours from Brazil. Brazil. Getting another role thanks to her old buddy, Terry Gilliam, Catherine Hellman. Welcome back. I think we even nominated her for an award, maybe, in the Mother's Day series, possibly. Really? Maybe. I, I can't remember, but I, I remember talking about her a couple of times. Interesting. Well, we can't spend time on all these cameos. We got to get through them. Oh, do we? All right, fine. I'll just read yeah. the rest of them off. Read the list. Here we go. We've got two Sopranos alums, Steve Sharipa and Richard Portnow. We also have Christopher hmm. Maloney. Welcome back to the podcast. Wait, slow down. Who's Christopher Maloney? Who's Chris- this uh, Shapir- Sharip- Sharipa guy? Which one Which one are these? Steve Sharipa played Bobby Bacala. In this movie, he plays a goon. Richard Portnow was Melvoin, Junior Soprano's attorney. And uh, he, I forget which role he was in. But a goon? A I'm looking at his picture, and I know this guy, but I don't, I don't remember who he plays in that. In the movie, I couldn't spot him. I'll be honest with you. I just read him on the cast list. I was like, oh, Steve Sharip is in there. Hmm. I, I couldn't find him in the movie. Yeah, me either. 
but Christopher Maloney has a bigger role when he's the uh, desk clerk. We've talked about him before for this part. Twelve Monkeys. It was yeah. that's what it was. Yeah, we did talk about this. That's right. It says that Vern Troyer is in this, but he is that the first yeah he's, person. Yeah, that does not look like Vern Troyer. No, he's he's the one that like uh, when they're in the circus place. He just says, excuse me, and he walks off, and then he just slowly slips underneath the cape of the taller person. Okay. that All right. So the first yeah. guy is not him. No. The first little person they encounter. Yeah. Multiple little people in this movie. Yeah. Uh, Hunter S. Thompson himself is in this movie. We mentioned that. Penn Gillette of Penn and Teller fame is mm-hmm. in this movie. And finally, Red Hot Chili Peppers bassist Flea. Yes. And uh, Harry Dean Stanton's also worth mentioning. He's he's been in a lot of stuff. So that is the biggest cast list maybe we've ever had. Yeah, but definitely the most cameos. And I'm done. Did you have anyone else? Uh, Lyle Lovett's on the list, and I know that name, but I don't know exactly who that is. Yeah, I thought oh, that he's was a one... singer, singer songwriter. I thought you'd yell at me for bringing him up, but I've definitely heard that name before too. Yeah, and there's another guy. Oh, who's the guy that? That is uh, Mark Harmon. Mark Harmon? Yeah, he was a – I looked him up, too. He was a college quarterback and then went on to become Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Mark – yeah, I was going to say he, he looks like Tom Cruise, but he's not. Yeah, like an older Tom Cruise. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there we go, man. We got every single person that appears on this movie. Hell, yeah. Probably. You probably missed a couple, too. But That does it for the cast, and with that, I think – we can now move along and head toward the desert. We were somewhere around Barstow when the drugs started to take hold. Head toward back country. That's what I wanted to say. Well, you know, I actually live off of 15 where they're driving through. I've driven through Barstow and all the, the I've taken that trip to LA from here. So Baker and Barstow and you yeah. hit all those uh, junkyards along the way and stuff. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, good. We're going to be needing you here, pal. I hope you come through. You know how my memory works. Like a steel trap. Hey, this is the kickstart of the second half of season two. So you got to win a podcast, man. You you crashed so hard on the award show. You've got to bounce Look, back strong. I won every podcast except for the award show I graciously gave to you. <laughs> you did not win every one. I on. won every podcast and then I handed you the award show. I was like, well, I can't let him go completely defeated. Well, thank you for that. That was nice of you. All right. Well, let's do this thing. But first, let's take a break. And have a mention from our local sponsors. In a world full of podcasts comes one more podcast. Two men who know absolutely nothing about hardly anything at all bring you the Rancid Taco Movie Review Podcast. You can check them out on Twitter at Rancid Movie or send them an email at RancidTacoPodcast at gmail.com. Prepare yourself for a most rancid experience with the Rancid Tacos. All right. So this movie starts with a bit of a backdrop. They talk about the Vietnam protests and part of the hippie movement in the 60s and then going into the 70s. It's kind of a backdrop for the movie. And... Mm -hmm. The main characters mention this a lot, 
and there is somewhat of a message. It's more prominent in the book, but it's kind of not on the surface. It's not something that you can cling to as you're watching the movie. As... Yeah, you don't get it as much in the movie, but in the book, it's definitely more pre- prevalent. So it's uh, you get a, you get a couple doses, but not much. I would imagine that this has more meaning to people that are just a bit older to us. Oh, yeah. Or, or people that have lived through the, the generation when this was all the stuff was like going on. But that's the that's the opening scrawl. And then we get an introduction to our main two characters. And it's Raul Duke and his attorney, Dr. Gonzo. Yeah. Yeah. And they're basically it starts. They're just streaming down the desert and the highway. And uh, immediately it jumps off into some weirdness where he starts uh, saying that they're uh, surrounded by bats, uh, computer animated bats. So there's just weird stuff happening right off the get go. Yeah, that's the Terry Gilliam stamp. I think that you really notice in this movie is the animals and the strange creatures that are throughout this. I mean, it, they're in the book too, but when you see them, that's when you can tell, hey, I'm watching a Terry Gilliam movie. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Also, it should be noted that these two are heavily under the influence of drugs at all moments in this script, the entire time. And they even mentioned in the first couple of minutes a list of all the drugs that they're carrying with them. And he says something to the effect of, uh, we have uh, two sheets of acid, uh, two, two boxes of amyl nitrates, a quart of tequila, a quart of rum, cocaine, all this. Not that we needed all this, but when you start collecting drugs, the tendency is to push it as far as you can. <laughs> I would say on the surface, if you watch this movie, and even maybe not even on the surface, the movie is mostly a, a, about drug culture. <laughs> yeah, it's a drug movie. Yeah. They do a re- really good job, particularly the actors, of, of acting like they're under the influence of each drug. <laughs> of each drug. Well, I know you said it's very unprofessional to be under the influence of drugs, but it's really hard for me to imagine that at no point did they do drugs to get into these roles or maybe even on set. Well, I don't know if they did or didn't, but I assume both of them have done most of those drugs, or not, not probably all those drugs, but at least know about those drugs and the effects of them and study that. Well, the two of them pick up a hitchhiker as they're driving here in the desert, but we still don't know where are they going? What, what are they doing? And they mm-hmm. use a nice device here to explain to the audience by explaining to this hitchhiker what they're doing in the desert. Yeah, and essentially they're, they're, they, he gives them the backstory where he, they pick up the hitchhiker, which is Tobey Maguire, and they give them the backstory and... Basically, the backstory is he's get he's hired to as a journalist to go cover this story called the Mint Four Hundred in Las Vegas. It's a bike race. It's a bike race, but the way they're talking about it, it's like very serious, and they're all paranoid. And he's like, "Hmm, sounds sounds sketchy." And he's explaining it to him in in the Hollywood by the pool, and he's like, "Yeah, well, you're gonna need plenty of legal advice." Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, he's like, "Gonna have to buy some Acapulco shirts." Uh, you're going to need the cocaine, and we're going to have to go armed to the teeth. Yeah, they're they're turning this into some strange, almost dangerous mission. mission. Yeah. When it clearly isn't. It's just him hired to go write a story about something in Vegas. And they're showing this with flashback scenes. And it's also here that they establish the pattern of these guys being total assholes to service workers the entire movie. <laughs> yeah, you're a yeah. service worker, stay out of the way of these two dudes. Yeah, they're definitely not treating the service well. That's a, it's a little person that's their waiter at the poolside place, and he like throws the change down on the ground to tip him, and 
He generally is rude to him, and then they stiff him on the bill before they leave. Yeah, yeah. They go to a car dealership to rent a car, to rent the car they're driving, and they're rude to this guy, and they drive it over the thing, and they're drunk when they're driving. I, I love the way Johnny Depp walks. Like, his walk for, for Raul Duke is, I guess, similar to Hunter Thompson's actual walk, but, like, he kind of has this bow-legged strut that he does. And it's like, I don't know how many times I've gotten drunk and started walking around like that just because from my memory from this film. Yeah, it's like if you face one foot facing one direction and the other the exact exact opposite, and then you walk. Yeah, That's but it's, how he's walking. But it's like his hips saunter and his shoulders are like half cocked, leaning over, and it's just he he looks like yeah, I don't know. It's it's really interesting, and I always I just always liked it. I don't know why. So they've explained all of this to the hitchhiker now, and I love the way they're doing it because Raul Duke is narrating to the to the movie watcher. But every mm-hmm. once in a while, he says the words out loud to the hitchhiker because I guess, you know, I don't know what drugs he's on here, but he's he's speaking in his head. But then every once in a while, it actually comes out of his mouth and he's surprised by it. And I, yeah. that cracks me up every time, especially in the beginning, before he starts telling a story, he's like, he's like, says something about, well, we can't he's like, we can't tell him what was really going on. Because he would report us to some outback law Nazi law enforcement agency, and they'd run us down and kill us like dogs. Jesus Christ! Did I say that? Was I speaking? Did they hear did me? They hear me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always love that. The part I really like is he says he told me he could understand me, but I could see in his eyes that he didn't. And then out loud he says he was lying to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the kids look at him right in the face. Like, he's oh, like the, the kid's lost. He's just like ah. Eh. And the funny part is, like, to watch the other people react to them, they're kind of reacting how people really would. Like, this kid is, like, looks scared, but is trying to, like, play it cool because he's a hitchhiker in these guys' car, and he's just trying to not offend them or, or say anything wrong. And he's, But you can see he's just terrified because they're absolutely out of their mind. Oh, yeah, they are both completely insane, and they do freak out the hitchhiker. Between Raul Duke talking to himself, and then Dr. Gonzo pulling over and pulling a gun out and screaming up into the sky. The hitchhiker freaks out and he bails out. Yeah, they pull over and Benicio Del... Well, yeah. Uh, Dr. Gonzo says, the truth, you want the truth? We're here to get a scumbag named Savage Henry because he burned us on a deal. And you know what that means. Yeah. He's cashed his last check and he goes to fire the gun up in the, in the air and the bullets don't go off. It just clicks a bunch of times. <laughs> All completely fabricated, too. Yeah, just, yeah, completely. He's just fake. fucking with this hitchhiker, basically. They're, they're so off the cuff, like, to cover their stories and come up with different shit to make it seem like they're not actually as, as drug-fueled insane they are that, like, it's remarkable to watch. So after the hitchhiker runs off, the Duke gives some acid or I'm sorry, the Duke takes some acid, and now he's on a timer. He's got to get to his hotel and check in before the acid kicks in, and he starts being completely non-functional as a human. Well, and he says to him, he's like, are you prepared to check into a major hotel with a, under a false identity with a head full of acid committing capital fraud? I sure hope so. And it's like, these guys have this whole like thing going on where they think they're they're like, being watched and chased the entire time but in reality nobody's actually after them (laughs) really for the most part well not at the beginning but toward the end i think people are after them not even really like i don't i don't think i don't know we could talk about it later but i i don't i don't know that there's like one scene where some somebody kind of tries to confront them but it doesn't it's they're never in threat of being in trouble well the fraud of it is raul duke is not his real name right and they're checking into this hotel 
under a fake name and then they're going to run up a huge bill and then not pay it and yeah. scam out. That's the capital fraud, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he's being sent there by a, a news agency. So I don't really understand the logistics of how that's all working out. Yeah. So is it all paid for by the by the his company or what? Well, if it was, you would be fired after your first trip with the money that these guys blow on room service. Yeah. You'd be fired immediately, probably within the first day of being there. Yeah, I don't know though, because Hunter Thompson was writing for Rolling Stone, doing similar shit like this, and you know he was such a good writer that they couldn't fire him. They just swallowed the. Uh, they just the took bill. The, they took the bill because the guy was pumping out fucking literary gold in their magazine. Well, he was a lucky dude for that, I would say. Yeah. Anyway, they do get to the hotel. It's another great scene. Him checking in because. Now he's fully in the throes of his acid trip. The head of the clerk turns into like this snake or lizard of some sort. An eel. An eel. And then he walks into the bar and all the bar patrons turn into dinosaurs or lizards. (laughs) And they all start like having a bloody orgy there. Well, that has like some commentary to it because it's like that's making a social commentary a little bit because he talks about. Like, as they're walking through, you see all these, like, supposedly make maybe, like, hookers and call girls that are talking to older guys, and these they're lighting their cigarettes, and, and or it, it, I don't even know if they're, like, you know, that, but it's, like, everybody's in there trying to, like, basically fuck each other and, and like, imbi- drink all this alcohol and get weird together, and so he, he's kind of viewing it from this, st- from this uh, tripping point of view where he's, like, we were in a reptile zoo and somebody was feeding booze to these goddamn animals. Yeah, it's like a cesspool of debauchery there. Yeah, the yeah. way he's looking at it. So it kind of turns in like he actually starts seeing reptiles and they're all like, like humping each other and rolling around in blood and like eating each other and stuff. This would be the point I think. If you're not into this movie, this would be when you would know. For sure. <laughs> I think if you make it here and you're just not feeling it at all, you might as well just turn it off because you're not going to like it any better yeah. after this. And vice versa, if you're still in it here and you like it and you, you've lasted this far and you're interested, you, this movie's got you. I'll admit, the first 30 or 45 minutes of this movie just blows me away. It's so awesome. It it's, just captures me every time you want to watch it. You keep yeah. watching it. Mm-hmm. Not so much the second half, though. I will admit that as well. The second half of this movie really falls off for me. Well, it tends to drag a bit, I think, but it's still really interesting stuff I, for, for me, I, I feel like. For now, Gonzo, who hasn't taken any acid, rescues Duke from the bar and the strange lizards. And they go up to the hotel room where they're now supposed to meet their photographer, a Portuguese man named Lacerda. And the best part is, is like, uh, Dr. Gonzo is all jacked on cocaine because he's been doing coke the whole time and Raul Duke is tripping on acid. So he's tripping over in the corner. And when, when the guy walks in, like Benicio del Toro, uh, Dr. Gonzo has got his glass. He lets him in. First, he's like got the gun to the door and he's looking through the door. He's like, all right, he comes in. He hides the gun by his back and then he goes and sits down. And he doesn't say a word the entire time. He just has his glasses on and stares straight ahead. He's grinding yeah. his teeth, you can see, a lot, Yeah, too. yeah, he's grinding his teeth. And then the photographer's trying to make small talk with uh, Raul Duke, who's cowering behind the TV because he's seeing <laughs> all these bombs and stuff go off from, like, the Vietnam War. Uh, oh, he's video. absolutely horrified the entire time he's on acid. Yeah, basically. yeah. And so the guy's like, all right, I'm going to let myself out then. And he goes to walk out. And as he goes out, Dr. Gonzo goes, 
we know we know what you're up to, man. <laughs> he's like, excuse, excuse me? Because he's so paranoid because he's on coke, right? He's like, we know. Have you ever been around people that are tripping on acid when you yourself are sober? Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's hard. You just can't get in their mind space. You're like, what? And- no, yeah, yeah. You're like... I mean, having done acid, I understand what it's like, but at the same time, when you're with somebody, it's like, that's their own thing. And they're they're They it, usually they're like, this is the most profound experience in my life. And they're trying to tell you stuff. And you're just like, uh-huh. Well, this is just like a Thursday for me. So yeah, it's just <laughs> another day for me, man. Yeah. I, I'm not on that level. Sorry, man. Like if I was there, I'd agree with you. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know, but I, you know, so we're a good portion of the way through their trip to Vegas here. And so far, Precisely nothing has happened, yet the movie is mm-hmm. supremely entertaining up to this point. They've oh, checked yeah, into yeah. the hotel is all they've really done. That's really all they've done and uh, picked up a hitchhiker, checked into a hotel. Yep. And, uh, and yeah, you know, like I said, it hooks you. You're, you're entertained. You're watching these weird guys. They're just entertaining. Yep. And I, I love as the photographer leaves, he, uh, Dr. Gonzo comes over and goes, he's lying to us. I can see it in his eyes. <laughs> and it's like, it's just that's to me the the most fun of the movie is is watching them be the stereotypical person on whatever drug that they're on. Yeah, I'll say that Raul Duke would probably be a fun time, but I would want no part of Doctor Gonzo. Yeah, even, he, even hanging out with as a friend, he seems dangerous and violent. And yeah, he paranoid. Gets, I was gonna say he gets so violent that it doesn't look like he'd be a lot of fun to be around. But the next day, thankfully. Raul, Raul Duke has sobered up. He goes to actually cover the race. The, the only reason that he's there, he even says, well, it's time to do the job. So he goes to this race, which is a dune buggy race out in the middle of the uh, desert. Motor, motorcycle. Regardless of yeah. if it's a motorcycle or a dune buggy, it's impossible to cover this kind of race as a journalist without a mm-hmm. helicopter. You yeah. can't tell what's going on. It's just all dust everywhere. Yeah, as soon as the motorcycles take off, they just start kicking dust everywhere, and the whole place turns into a big dust tornado, and you can't see anything. So what's the fucking point of, of covering it at all? He's, he's probably thinking. He gives it somewhat of a college try. He even gets in a like a Jeep with Lacerda to try to chase after the race car drivers. Yeah. But then he, he feels like they're being under attack. I never really got this scene. Who are these people that just show up with the guns on their thing? I think they're just some like local hunters from like around there or something. They're out and they have a mounted turret gun on the back of their uh, Jeep and they're running around shooting. They have a deer uh, draped over the front of their car. So they're just like hunters that pull up on these guys. And uh, yeah, I don't know what the point or purpose is, but it's mildly entertaining. Mildly. Yeah. Yeah. But he gets pissed at Lacerda because Lacerda is a bit of a tryhard. And Raul Duke's like, yeah, I'm, I'm done with this race. So he fires Lacerda on the spot and quits the job, basically, or walks off the job there. Yeah, to me, that's the best part of the scene is Lacerda getting so excited to shoot in this dust storm. And he's like, I can't get anything. I'm just going to keep trying different lenses until I can find one that works in this dust. Oh, he's and so he's excited like, to yeah, try and the he's new like, lenses. And then he's too. like, ha ha, like he's super excited about it. And I'm just like, okay. I actually kind of liked Lacerda. We didn't mention his actor, despite mentioning 20 other actors. But yeah, he's I thought got Lacerda one. was actually kind of cool. Yeah, he's got one of the bigger roles. We probably should mention him here. I'll, uh, I'll look him up real quick. Craig Bierko. Uh, never heard of him. Nope. I've seen him before in something else, but 
Nothing good. I always think of Brendan Fraser when I see Lacerda. I feel like he's got a Brendan Fraser look about him. Yeah, a little bit. I would agree with that. So Duke quits his job there. or He walks off the job. And he and Gonzo now hit the Las Vegas Strip. And they mention as they're driving on the Strip here that the two of them are stoned, ripped, twisted. Good people. Good people. Two American boys. They're out to... They're out to chase the American dream is what they keep saying. They are literally the worst people on the strip. (laughs) I mean, there is no redeeming qualities to these two guys at all. They're they're mildly funny. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could say that their hijinks usually isn't uh, costing anybody else too much of of an issue, but maybe you could probably argue against that. I don't know. Yeah. You could argue against that. I mean, obviously the servers and their service thing, it's like, that's douchey, but most of the time, they're just kind of like going around saying ridiculous stuff and getting thrown out of places. Puking on people's cars and threatening people with knives and things, too. Yeah, this movie probably ruined Las Vegas because after people saw it, they all were like, let's go to Vegas and be complete dickholes to everybody. Yeah, I could see that. If, if people act like this in Vegas, I'm never going. I'll say that. No, I mean, tourists definitely come here and just run wild, but you'll have that with people consuming a lot of alcohol but you don't see people stumbling around in the depths of an ether binge not ether no No. not often no alcohol is the main weapon choice out here well we don't get to the ether just yet before they take the ether they go to a debbie reynolds show we mentioned debbie reynolds no clue who she really is or what she's ever saying or done but they get i thought it was pretty cool how they connived their way in oh yeah they're master con artists basically dr gonzo i think he threatens legal action yeah oh yeah he walks up and he's like we drove all the way from la he's like you got tickets fuck tickets we're friends of debbie's i used to romp with her (laughs) which is funny too it's it's a good way to get i used to romp with her yeah he's like (laughs) he's like can i talk to you for a second are you prepared to go to court (laughs) it's just like ridiculous prepared to go to court he's like your attitude uh, constitutes a breach in in something. <laughs> and he's yeah, using whatever. he's using all these legal terms to try and talk his way in, and it works. They end up getting let in for nothing. Yeah, they get let in, but the screen doesn't even cut, and within twenty seconds, they're kicked back out again and dragged by the ushers. <laughs> yeah, Not- that's the that's the weird part to me is like, what happens in that twenty seconds? Because they come out and they're like laughing and howling and screaming and people yeah what could have possibly happened in that 15 or 20 seconds yeah what did they do in there that quickly to just crack themselves up and then immediately get thrown out like that that's a fear and loathing mystery that we'll Mm -hmm. never know maybe maybe it's in the book but i didn't catch it when i read it yeah i don't remember i'll be honest i've only read the book i think twice and it's been over 15 years probably since i read them yeah The, the book I, I probably I think I've read it twice as well, and it's not it's like yeah, it's a quick read. It's not a very big book, so like the movie does cover most of it, but there are some finer points in the book that are uh, that are interesting. So we mentioned that they're going to take some ether, and I'm not even sure what ether is. I associate it with the stuff that the Undertaker used to knock out his opponents in the <laughs> late '90s. But I don't um, know if that's what it was. Ether is a type of uh, liquid gas, I want to say. Like a, like, it's like you're huffing gasoline almost. It's a chemical that when you huff it, it gets you high. It's not a common drug, though, right? It's, I've never even heard of someone like selling ether on the street or anything. 
No, but I do remember somebody in high school after like seeing this movie was like, hey, I got some ether. You want to try it? <laughs> what do you think it really was? Just gas probably? <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, I don't know. It could have been paint remover or whatever. Oh, God. Maybe there's ether in paint remover. I don't know. I don't know either. But, but you can guys... you can huff that stuff and you, you it will like mess with your head. It kills an, an extraordinary amount of brain cells. It's really bad for you. Oh, the way they portray it in this movie is you can't even walk anymore once you take it. It it debilitates your motor functions, and the two of them are stumbling in through the gate. I actually love the scene because they take the drugs, and then everyone around them can see that they're severely impaired. But it, they even mention in the narration, well, they just wanted our two bucks, and they shoved us inside and turned us loose. Oh, and yeah, yeah. It's like most places reject a drunk or, or a drug abuser, but casinos and carnivals and stuff let them like in that. Yeah. let them in yeah get, please let them in get all their money before they before they pass out not only let them in but welcome them like these yeah. are the ones that you want this is their home they're gonna spend all their money and have no control yeah i actually kind of like th- that they touched on that in this movie yeah mm-hmm. that's that's for sure uh a thing and to touch back on like huffing things and gas because like i one time remember i was mowing or something like that and i was just kind of curious and i was like oh i know you can huff gasoline so i gave it a try and like i put my face down the gas tank and took some big whiffs and i just remember it feeling like i was super dizzy and like i remember hearing something and it sounded like the sound happened uh with an echo like a hundred times it was like a bird or something tweeted and it was like (laughs) and i was i was just you know it was weird, and it did kind of make you feel like you were drunk and wobbly. So, but it doesn't last very long, right? No, no, it lasted for like maybe twenty seconds, and then you start to go back to normal. Uh, it's not good. It's just a bad thing to do. Don't do anything that's going to kill your brain cells. Yeah, it makes you dumb. We're not condoning drug use to anyone here, but uh, we have, or at least I, I'll speak for myself. I have definitely used drugs, and I'm not ashamed to say that. And, oh no, uh, obviously not. You just. I mean, I was past the ether thing, and you were like, well, I used to huff gas and listen to the birds. <laughs> I used to huff gas and hey, listen to the birds tweet. Mowing is boring, man, all right? You got you got to do anything you can, uh, you know? Uh, I'm going to have a fine time with this one, editor. Yeah, explain this one to your wife. Uh, oh, she's not the problem. It's when the kids are, like, just old enough to listen to it. Dad, what's ether? What's ether? What? They're going to start asking questions and be like, what does he mean when he says this? Yeah, exactly. Let's just say that they take the ether, they bought the ticket, and now they're going to take the ride as they get into the carnival. Oh, yeah. You shall not pass without sending us an email at rancidtacopodcast at gmail.com or check us out at our Twitter handle at Rancid Movie. So Raul Duke and Gonzo now get into the carnival, completely ripped on the ether. When they get inside, though, the ether fully takes hold and Gonzo gets the fear. So getting the fear is like this state of anxiety that sometimes accompanies drug trips, right? <laughs> yes. I I was in a, a bar in Manhattan with my girlfriend at the time, and we were out back at this like little bar area, and we took a few hits of weed, and all of a sudden I started getting anxiety, and I leaned over to her, and I was like, I'm getting the fear. <laughs> We've got to leave. I'm getting the fear. 
Oh, that sucks. Well, that's what happens to Gonzo when he leaves. Duke stays there and kind of witnesses the strange goings-ons of the carnival. And there's monkeys and wolverines. Was he imagining the wolverines on the trapezes, or was that actually part of the show? No, I think that's actually part of the show. There, It's funny, there is a, a, a casino here in Vegas called Circus Circus that does like a high-flying act over top of the casino, just like that. So it's, I'm pretty sure it was uh, written after that. With wolverines, though? I've never seen a wolverine there, but I've he only was, been there a couple times. He was just imagining the wolverines, I think. That's what I liked about the scene is he was so heavily un- under the influence of these drugs that he may have been imagining the things, but also a carnival is so outlandish that yeah, exactly. maybe like, it was real. I never thought that he was imagining it. I just assumed because Vegas is so weird, like that actually was going on. Well, you see Penn and Teller, or just Penn, I think, Penn, in this yeah. scene, and a couple of the other cameos are in the yeah. scene. Vern Troyer is in this one. Yeah. But when Duke goes back up to the room, it's now really destroyed. Not quite as bad as it will be later on, but the room is in bad shape. Could you yeah. imagine trashing a hotel room like this this quickly? Well, and you can see these guys are just decadent as hell. Like when they order before this, they order something like nine grapefruits and three or four co- shrimp cocktail. 20 and, lobster tails. Or yeah. Something like that. And, and that actually is kind of true. Like Hunter Thompson had a breakfast ritual where he would only eat once a day. And he would he would stay up all night and go to bed around like seven or eight a.m. in the morning, and then sleep until like four in the afternoon. He would wake up and he would literally eat this monster breakfast, and it would it consist of a bunch of grapefruits, eggs, uh, you know, hash brown, whatever, whatever he could like all the stuff he'd eat. But it also would be like chevis regal scotch and cocaine and margaritas like he would just take in all like the guy was a champion imbiber of everything i remember in the rum diary book he always ate the two hamburgers and he wouldn't eat anything else he would eat once a day and it was always the two hamburgers at at the local bar yeah that one was modeled after him as well because he was a reporter in san juan for a while that was a good story i like that one yeah, it's one of his better, like, or one of his only novels. Well, here they do order a shitload of room service and trash the room. Mm-hmm. But back at the room, they recount a previous encounter that they'd had with Lacerda and a blonde TV reporter. This is Cameron Diaz's character. And this is a pretty dark scene, actually. Yeah, it turns weird real quick. Like, they get in the elevator. And uh, she mistakes him for a motorcycle rider. And he's like, what? What do you mean? He's like, yeah, what, do you, what class do you ride? He's like, oh, I, I ride the big, the big fuckers. The big fuckers. And then the other guy's like, bullshit. And he's like, what'd you say? And so he starts getting very aggressive and violent, pulls out the knife and starts threatening everybody in there. And so they have to like take off and make an escape from the elevator. Yeah, Dr. Gonzo is the one who, yeah. who pulls a knife on Lacerda, it looks like there. And this reporter, which is Cameron Diaz. And it's really strange. They do make it funny because when the door opens and that couple's standing there and he's yeah. holding the knife to everybody, it is kind of funny. But And I wrote down like, how beautifully does Benicio del Toro play the scene? Because I just love the way he is in that scene. Like you can see the insecurity going on within him and also the like bravado and the, and all that stuff. So it's just, I really like the way he plays the scene in the elevator. A very serious crime that they're committing. Here. Yeah. But they do run away. I love the way that they're both running away, Duke and Gonzo. 
but Duke is running away from Gonzo also. <laughs> yeah. Like he's hugging the wall, like trying to stay as far away from him as possible yeah. because he just committed that crime in the elevator. Is this this is the part where he gets in the door and he won't let him in, right? And he's like, put the knife away. He's like, all right, it's in my pocket. It's in my pocket. Yeah, this is where they get back to the room and Duke now leaves Gonzo alone in the room because he's he's very dangerous at this point. He seems dangerous with the knife and everything. So he goes down to the casino floor. And as someone who's worked in a casino for the last 15 years, I got to say, I, I really love this scene. The 4.30 in the morning, sad sack people that are playing the big six wheel. It's yeah. like there are people like that in the world. It's not yeah. quite as prominent as in this movie, but I imagine in Vegas at a popular casino. Oh, yeah. Is. Yeah, like, I mean, I've been at casinos at 5, 6 a.m. in the morning where people are still just sitting there playing black. They've been playing blackjack for like three, four, five hours, you know. It's just like... They're they're tired. They're ready to go to sleep, and they're still just staring at the table, like uh, still just playing brainlessly at four thirty on a Sunday. He says, "Yeah," and he plays the big six wheel, which statistically I think is the worst odds in the casino. Yeah, but it's got to be like a huge payout if you hit, right? No, it, if you bet the one, which there's more ones than anything, it pays one to one. But if what? you bet the jackpot, it's like thirty to one. Still, it's not very good at all. Oh, okay. So it's like it's it's like betting one number on roulette. Yeah, it's it's total garbage. It's the worst yeah. game in the house. But Duke does lose his money here, and he laments about the gambling culture and the the realization yeah. or the non-realization of the American dream for these people. Yeah, still humping the American dream. He says this idea that uh, somehow, some way, you're going to become the you're going to emerge as the big winner and come out rich from this stale, crusty uh, casino at 4 a.m. on a Sunday night. Yeah, we had mentioned that there is somewhat of a message in this movie, and that's kind of part of it. There's yeah. the whole the hippie, the hippie downfall part of it, and then also this idea of chasing the American dream in Vegas is the per- perfect place to do it. Yeah. And the failure of what comes from chasing the American dream and not yeah. succeeding. The, and the broken hope. The, the hope that you have and like the little chances that you have of actually hitting that hope. Yeah. The casino is the perfect embodiment of that actually. Yeah. Specifically the big six wheel, the worst game and the worst game in the house there. <laughs> yeah. But he goes back upstairs now to Gonzo and Gonzo is off his mind here. He is in the bathtub with his dirty bath water. And I mentioned <laughs> if I was the actor, I probably would have like pooped in the water to make it more realistic to get in character. <laughs> <laughs> Let me yeah. ask you this one. Do you think Brando or, or Willem Dafoe or, or Joe King, one of our guys, you think they would, would poop a, in the water? No, I don't think anybody would poop in the water. You would be in a class all by yourself. Like, that would be a story they'd tell and be like, Mason Weir was so dedicated to his craft, he, he took he a dump in, in the water. water. <laughs> well, it seems to me like the character of Gonzo here would have definitely pooped in the water. Well, they, they look- do... Th- they do throw a random fart in there for some reason. I'm like, why do you even do? Why did they even do that? <laughs> I don't know. That, maybe that's where I got the idea that he pooped in there from. But well, the, the water, water the water looks disgusting. It's like brown and dirty and nasty. But there's things floating around in it, and he's still wearing his tuxedo jacket, or not his tuxedo, but his uh, suit jacket and shirt with his tie. But he's in tidy whiteies and his socks. <laughs> it's like, it's like he's he's all messed up. He's listening to White Rabbit from Jefferson Airplane. Yeah, he's absolutely disgusting in this scene. It looks like there's puke in the water, too. But his idea, he's got the knife, and and he's out of his mind. He wants 
Duke to throw the radio in the bathtub when, when White Rabbit peaks, which would kill him. Yeah, he wants to commit suicide, essentially. I don't know what they're going for. with It's not funny. It's not really dramatic. It's more just disturbing to watch. I guess it's, it's, it's kind of intriguing, but it's really yeah, it's, just a weird scene here. I mean, it fits right in with the rest of the fucking movie. It's just shocking. It's entertaining because it's kind of shocking. Yeah. Yeah, it's got some shock value. I particularly like the part where he holds up the shower curtain. And he says, I am Ahab. I am Ahab. But he does subdue Gonzo. He Instead of throwing the radio at him, he throws a grapefruit at him and then shuts the door on him. And then he begs him for some sleep. So finally, after two days of a drug-fueled trip through Vegas, the Duke is ready to get a little bit of sleep. But instead... He starts reliving his days in the 60s in San Francisco. Yeah, and this, it's, this is one of those parts where you get, you get kind of a message, and he, he talks about um, being alive in San Francisco and, and in, the, in California particularly where there was all this protesting going on, and he says you, there were sparks everywhere. You could start a fire anywhere, and there was this unbelievable feeling that – you know, it shows people protesting Vietnam and all that stuff. And he's like, there's this, there was this unbelievable sense of what we were doing was right and that we were winning and it was all that we were good and we didn't need war. We didn't need violence or any of that. We could just overcome it with uh, being love, happy vibration type of people. And, uh, and then at the end, he sort of says, if you have the right, if you have the right eyes, you can over, you can look out over the hills and see where the where the wave broke, the great wave of people broke and rolled back, meaning California, where it hit the edge of California and like never really escaped. Yeah, and and meaning that the culture peaked and then went receded, it receded back into the, yeah, and then the died city. out. Yeah, I think that's the most famous monologue within the book here. Yeah, and within the movie. It's the only scene in the movie where it makes you feel something other than what the hell am I watching right now? Yeah, basically. other than this is just drug-fueled craziness. Yeah. And I think this is the point for me. You said it wasn't the case for you, but this is the point for me where the movie starts to take a pretty serious drop-off in quality. And mm-hmm. I'm not blaming the book or the content because I learned that this movie was rushed. The script for this movie was written in 10 days on a deadline by Terry Gilliam. Jesus. Yeah, and they mostly focused on what was in the book, but I could understand maybe the quality falling off a bit toward the end, if that's the case. Well, it is pretty much verbatim to the book. It just uh, doesn't cover all everything that the book can cover because you know no movie can. Uh, so it it remains true to the book, I think, but it just focuses mostly on the drug use and what's going on, which is a big part of the book, but. It's it becomes a drug fueled adventure as opposed to a, uh, a a look at what's going on in the culture and why the seventies are turning out different than the sixties and what was good in the sixties and what's now bad in the seventies sort of I think which is kind of more about more a little bit covered in the book. Oh yeah, and in the movie it was a great moment and one of the best moments. And I watched this on Amazon Prime. And they slam an ad right at the end of his speech when he talks about the wave breaking. It, it was so annoying. I was Perfect. like, oh, what a great nostalgic feeling I'm getting. And it's like a tampon commercial or something. <laughs> yeah, right. It was horrible. And is this, is this when he goes back in time to San Francisco? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so like, and, and this is another thing where he goes back and talks about acid. And he's like, this is the thing. Timothy Leary, who was the guy who basically was the, one of the main cooker of that, like chemists that 
cooked acid and started distributing it wide scale in, in the United States. He's like Timothy Leary's whole thing was selling mind expansion one hit at a time. And, and the problem was he was selling hope to all these people uh, with who had this grand idea that for five bucks a hit, they could buy peace of mind and the answers to the universe and the, the some something was, was, controlling the world at the end of the tunnel some greater power you know but it, it, he was selling hope and then now 10 years later or whatever everyone's disillusioned from that and it, they didn't get where they thought they were going to get and within this scene we see hunter thompson the real person in the scene uh-huh. but also his character which is a bit younger because it's in the past goes to the bathroom and spills <laughs> some acid on his sleeve and it's plea from the uh, red hot chili peppers that yeah is licking some acid and, off. And of his th- arm. this this is another funny, weird why scene too, because they goes into this. He spills the acid on his arm, and it's all done in like slow mo and like, what's the problem? Man? What's the trouble? Yeah, and he's like tells him that it's acid. So so Flea starts like licking and snorting up his arm to get the dust off the acid, and some guy in a business suit walks in and sees it. Sees these then, two men in the bathroom sniffing powder off. Off, off each other's arm, arms yeah. or whatever and so this guy's like just shaking his whole foundation he goes out and he's sitting down out front he's like smoking paranoid everybody that walks through the door he looks up and is like somewhere somehow with a little luck this guy thought somewhere somehow there are men behind doors getting thrills that he'll never know you know and he's like it's just, i don't know why how it fits in or what but it it makes another commentary that's kind of interesting another strange but interesting scene for sure mm-hmm so Duke now wakes up, I guess. So he did get some sleep. And he wakes up to the room being even more destroyed than before. And the gigantic room service bill. He says that they were being billed 24 to $36 an hour for 48 consecutive hours. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Gonzo is gone. And he says the, the idea to flee came suddenly or maybe it didn't you know combined with all the hotel bills or whatever so now he's got super paranoid because he thinks he's going to get stuck with the bill so he's got to get out of dodge yeah i love this paranoid scene actually it's a lot like the scene in goodfellas when henry hill is running from the cops and making all that spaghetti and stuff yeah is that a helicopter love Mm -hmm. that scene and it's kind of like this he's trying to escape and the hotel manager tracks him down and he's like trying to talk his way out of it knowing everything he's talking circles with this hotel manager yeah yeah and he does another great job of like deflecting and, t- and making up a story that covers for him because the hotel director says we got a message from dr gonzo to a mr thompson which is neat because they mentioned thompson like raul duke is hunter thompson's alter ego that he wrote this story under and so he goes he's like you did the right thing uh, and it's like he has a way of making them feel like they did the they, like they're part of the like they made a choice that yeah that that meant this something is, that this is a big that this, this is a big scam and they they're now in on it and they've discovered it and they're they're helping you know stop that so he's like yeah you never tried to decipher journalists right usually it's backwards and he's like the, the telegram's not from uh dr gonzo it's to dr gonzo and it's from thompson He's like, so I have to go because I'm going to be late for the race. He's like, but the race is over. He's like, not for me. <laughs> I also like, like that he has a trunk full of hotel towels and soap that he stole. 
Yeah. He stole from the hotel just after having that huge bill. He's like, oh, let me get some extra soap and extra towels to steal and take on the road, too. (laughs) Yeah, right. So he's escaped now from the hotel, but he's pulled over by the local police or the Las Vegas police. And uh, there's no worse feeling than when those lights turn on behind your car, whether you're doing anything wrong or not. But in his case, he is doing a lot of wrong things. Yeah. And he makes the cop chase him. And then he pulls over to like a scenic area and they, and he's just leaned against the car with a beer in his hand. Uh, you know. he, he does give somewhat of a valid lesson here, though, I think. If you are getting pulled over, I don't think it's right to just pull right over. I think you should, you know, kind of cruise along for a minute to find a safe place to pull over. I doubt it matters. You don't think it matters? No, yeah. Like, you shouldn't pull over and put anybody else in danger, but it's like as soon as the lights come on, you should immediately slow down and get over to the side and stop. Well, he doesn't. He he speeds up to about 80 miles an hour and then does a, a U-turn and then whips it into the rest area, like you said. So what do you think about this scene? Because we've already said a few times in this this review, what the hell is the point of this scene? But this one, man, is especially <laughs> Especially strange. what the hell. Yeah, so Gary Busey pulls him over. He's the cop. He starts questioning him. And right off the bat, you can tell he's going to be, like, friendly with him. And he's, like, and and Raul's not exactly cooperating, but he's not fighting against it. He's almost kind of making it a game. He's like, yeah, I know. I did it. Uh, I mean, shit, look at me. I'm a fucking criminal. He's holding a beer. Yeah, he's holding a beer, drinking it. But he's also downplaying it. He's like, yeah, look at me. I'm a criminal, right? And the guy's like, okay, well, this guy's too crazy to be to be like that doing anything that bad so he tells him he's like you know what i think you need to pull up to the rest area right up here and get some sleep which i'm gonna say was your intended destination and so he's about to let him off and they go through this weird exchange where he's like look at me look me in the eyes and he looks at him in the eyes and he's like can i get a kiss from you yeah Uh, (laughs) it's like what what the scene cuts, and then Duke says, I felt raped. The pig had done me on all fronts. Yeah, now he's so, driving off to brag about Did he own. get raped? That's This is the one point I had to ask you here. Did he actually get raped by this guy, do you think? No, I think he, the guy just, like, kissed him or made out with him or something. I don't know. Like, and Why? He was like, he was like all right, I guess I'll do it. So this I cop mean, was, like, yeah, getting sexual favors in return for letting him off the hook? Yeah, the cop was a weirdo. Like, that's the other thing is like this movie's about like everybody else is also kind of weird, but not even on drugs. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's why. Why is the question? So he forced this guy to make out with him in return for not taking him to a Las Vegas jail. Yeah, he's a lonely highway patrolman. He doesn't get to talk to a lot of people. He must have like a rundown, horrible life, and he's looking for a little action out there on the road. Weird scene there. Maybe he's a closet homosexual. Who knows? I guess so. But he, uh, Raul takes one for the team or takes one for himself, however you want to look at it there. But he takes one and, <laughs> and he goes to get out of town. He runs into the hitchhiker again. So he uh, drives off in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. I guess they just wanted to show Toby McGuire one more time. Yeah, and I don't know what the point of that is either, except for, like, sometimes really weird things like that tend to happen when you're on drugs where it's like, no way that could have happened. No way I could have just seen that person that I actually know out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, right. But he goes to the shadiest payphone ever. (laughs) 
It's at this junkyard out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, like in the middle of a junkyard. Not even a junkyard. Like you couldn't use any of that junk for anything. If that was a payphone that's been used before, I would say 80 to 90% of the calls have been something like, it's done. Okay. Referring to the burial of a, of a body. Yeah, uh, yeah, 100 bodies, to be exact. In the desert, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> 100 bodies hidden in the desert. Right 100 now. bodies. From illegal murders. Yeah, from illegal murders. <laughs> so from the shadiest payphone in history, Raul calls Dr. Gonzo and asks him where he went. And Gonzo plays it off from his office, and he says that Duke now has a new assignment, and that is to cover a convention of the National District Attorneys, and it's specifically a narcotics convention. Yeah. (laughs) Of all jobs to give this guy. Yeah, right? I was like, perfect irony of, of him covering that. So he goes to a new hotel to check in, and I love this scene. This is where we see Christopher Merloni. And he's this very, very feminine clerk at this hotel. And all these cops are trying to check into this convention. And they're all yelling at him and screaming at him. And Raul Duke is the one that relates with him. And so he easily checks in and gets his room. And he imagines what the clerk is actually thinking. Fuck you, you fuzzy little shithead. Yeah, Merloni goes off on this guy. And it's it's a great little cameo yeah. from him. That is a nice scene. I, I love his part in that. The only time you'll ever see this actor in this kind of role. Everything else, he's this hard-ass Bruce Willis tough guy. Super masculine, manly, tough guy. And this one, he's like a very feminine gay guy. So Duke goes upstairs to his room, and he finds Gonzo there, as well as Christina Ricci's character, a seemingly abducted young girl. Yeah, Lucy. 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 Sorry, I didn't say her name there. Lucy. Yeah, Lucy. And... and, uh... He met Lucy on the plane and he gave her a hit of acid before he realized she'd never even like had a drink before. And she's also underage. So she has a thing where she's, she's obviously a little disturbed and strange. She's big into religion stuff, but she paints pictures of Barbara Streisand. Yeah. That's her thing is painting pictures of Barbara Streisand. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and Dr. Gonzo here is, uh, pawning himself off as some like religious guru that he's like he's got like a robe and is speaking to her all softly and gently and stuff but at the same time you can tell he's just trying to like groom her basically to have sex with her was that what she thought he was doing that was his end game was yeah i think i think so yeah so this guy is the ultimate scum i mean he's a scumbag he's recruiting (laughs) underage girls to god knows what purpose yeah, well, they he gets him outside and talks to him about that, and he's like, "Oh yeah, this will be great. We'll have all the cops will have a go at her. We can charge a thousand dollars per person." And he's like, "Oh, that is ugly. You, I knew you were sick, but I didn't know you were this sick that you'd actually say something like that." Well, yeah, you've got it backwards. It's Duke that's saying that stuff. Yeah, Duke is saying that to Doctor Gonzo, but he's like, "Think about what you've got here on your hands." He's he's just relaying the way the situation looks. I was injecting my personal opinion. I don't know if he actually had plans to do that. We don't really get that, I guess, through the script, but we do get the idea of like, it's like he's being her guru leader sort of yeah, guy. He's, he's trying to seduce her in his own strange way. Yeah. But from an outside perspective, it definitely looks like they've abducted this girl. They've drugged her and now they're doing horrible things to her. And yeah. Duke sees this. So they've got to ditch Lucy and do it quick. Their plan to do this is to just drop her off at a different hotel and hope for the best. 
Yeah. They reserve her a room and then they just drop her off at the front door while, while the acid is still working, I think they say, before pretty, the acid wears off. Pretty much just ditch her. That's pretty fucked up, man. <clears throat> well, at that point, that's probably the best thing that they could do. They're hoping that she doesn't remember anything, I guess, after yeah, that. At least they pay for the room and the, and the cab. So now they're at the narcotics convention, and this scene is ridiculous. It's a room full of cops, and they're all disinterested in the speakers there. They're getting, like, hand jobs from their wives and sleeping through the presentation. Yeah. And the, the speaker himself is presenting this crusade, this phony crusade against marijuana, and it's completely absurd. It's very reminiscent yeah. of Reefer Madness, if you've ever seen that. Yeah, they're just completely wrong about everything they're talking about with weed. And and at one point, he's like, do you think, uh, what's her name? Some like famous person who's gone crazy. You think her recent antics on television are due to a marijuana addiction? He's like, I'll tell you what. If she, I don't know if it's a reason, but if it was, she'd have one hell of a trip. <laughs> at her age, she'd have one hell of a trip. Yeah, and everyone's laughing. And they're like, you don't trip off of weed. But okay, all right. There was one part where he says, you'll recognize a marijuana addict because he'll, his pants will be crusted with semen from constantly, <laughs> from constantly jacking, jacking off, off from yeah. searching for a rape victim. Yeah, and then he looks down and he has like a stain right on his pants that looks like jizz and he starts trying to scratch it off. <laughs> That's a funny little part. The whole scene's kind of funny and ultimately pointless again. They're just using it as a, uh, to poke at the war on drugs, I guess. Yeah, because they're so ridiculously off about weed that it just makes them look like idiots. Yeah. I actually thought those scenes within the movie were from Reefer Madness at first, but I don't think they are. I think it's just a parody that in, in likeness to that movie. Yeah. Have you seen Reefer Madness? Yeah. I, I haven't seen it for a long time, but I remember thinking it was one of the Pretty most dumb. absurd things I've ever seen. Oh, yeah, like they're they're high and they're out of control and they hit somebody in a car, but... You can see the speedometer, and they're only going 40 miles an hour. <laughs> like, well, they like, turn into complete okay. maniacs when they smoke weed. They turn yeah, into, like, like, demons. zombie vampire people. Oh, God. Anyway, they get back to the room, and it turns out Lucy has been calling the room, trying to get in touch with them. So she knows where they're at, and they haven't evaded her completely. So they hatch a new plan to get rid of Lucy, and this involves Gonzo pretending to be murdered on the phone. <laughs> yeah. What the hell? Yeah. And and the so like the funny part is like uh, he has this bottle of uh, adrenochrome, which is actually a fake drug, but it's become popular in uh, like the QAnon circles for theories. Like they think it's a real thing. So the the QAnon, the modern conspiracy uh, group. They believe it's a real thing, and they believe like the Hollywood elite liberals are extracting adrenochrome from people and using it. But it's a drug that was made up in this movie. Like it stems from this movie. The actual use of it as a drug. It's just it's just funny for me to be like, this is the origin of where they get their like information for this real life conspiracy theory that they believe. <laughs> that's how you leave your mark on pop culture. There, that, that's what this movie yeah. has done with adrenochrome. Right. So he's taking the adrenochrome while in the background, Dr. Gonzo is pretending like somebody broke in and he's like, no, it wasn't me. It was Duke. Ah, and he pretends to kill himself on the phone and then hang up. And he's like, all right, done. That should be the last we hear of Lucy. <laughs> yeah. So they're thinking they got rid of Lucy with this phone trick. 
But the adrenochrome is a drug that is more powerful than anything that they've done so far. And Duke starts completely losing his mind. At no point does this seem like a fun trip at all. If this drug would do this to you, I would never want to take this drug. <laughs> yeah, no, he he like immediately, well, he takes way too much of it. So he over, is like almost overdosing on it, essentially. And all of a sudden, like... Um, Gonzo, Gonzo turns into a demon. He's telling him the story and he's like feeding him cocaine off of the knife. And first he's snorting it, then he just starts eating it off the knife. And then his like then Dr. Gonzo's eyes turn into like demon eyes. And then he has like these big hairy tits on his back and he turns into like a full scale devil beast creature while he's telling a story. And then all of a sudden it just stops and he goes back to normal. And, and uh, Raul Duke's sitting there and he goes, finish the fucking story. here, <laughs> And it's like, Oh, that shit got on top of you really fast. <laughs> oh, yeah, he looks really rough. He looks like he's on the verge of death, honestly, when he's in oh. the throes of this adrenochrome. He looks like a... Uh... Like a living dead man. Yeah. Well, eventually, he uh, passes out, I guess, or he blacks out. And when he comes to from this, the room is now trashed more than ever, completely flooded, actually, somehow. <laughs> the Dr. worst state... The worst state we've seen any of the rooms in so far. The bed is smoldering as yeah. though a missile or a rocket had hit the bed. And he's There's... wearing a dinosaur tail for some yeah, reason. Yeah, he's wearing a velociraptor tail. There's like a shrine built to Debbie Reynolds. There's ketchup crusted on the walls with porno pictures and stuff. So Gun in the he... toilet with a mannequin's legs. He's like, where are his... they even getting all these things? Yeah, right? I'm like, where? how did they get this shit together? There's like a bear that's dressed up in like BDSM stuff. And, and he's got the tape recorder taped to his chest. So he keeps stopping and starting and like listening and going through the memories of what happened. So you're kind of getting filled in to, to what went down. It looks like at least one full day went down during this trip on the adrenochrome, right? Or yeah. maybe even more than that. Yeah, maybe more. Yeah. But luckily, Duke does have it all recorded with the tape recorder, and he starts listening and reminiscing about what happened while he was on this adrenochrome. And it's a bunch of missing time, so I'm going to theorize here that the adrenochrome actually opened him up for alien transport. And, <laughs> and the missing time is what the reason that uh, he has to piece this all together is he was abducted. There's some missing time here. Yeah, aliens. Uh, this this movie would work with alien stuff going on. Like it's, and it's in the desert. It's near Area 51. The lizard so. tail might be lizard people, like a reference to the lizard people. Yeah, yeah. They're that's always prob- doing the lizards on this. That's immediately what I thought, too. Yeah, because that, that makes sense. It's pretty likely that he was abducted there. Yeah, that's, I agree. But we don't see the aliens on the screen. What we yeah. do see... Or is, actually really have any evidence that they were there. Not a lot of evidence. Yeah, yeah, not, not, not really any at all, I guess. But we do see a lot of the things... So it's probably not do. fucking aliens, okay? It's probably not fucking aliens, all right? Probably not. I'll, I'll let you... I'll let this one lie. <laughs> Did you like the way I played in and like pretended like I agreed with you just so I could say, oh, yeah, but we don't have any fucking evidence for that? No, because it wasn't much of a theory. If it was a true theory, that would have pissed me off just now. But okay, all right. but it wasn't much of a theory, so I'm <laughs> I'm gonna let you shoot me down rudely, but shoot me down. I'll let you. Well, yeah, yeah. If I don't do it rudely, I don't do it at all. Oh yeah, it was it was rude for sure. All yeah. right. Well, hey, I apologize for that. Good. Don't ever yell at me again about aliens. Yeah. Sorry, sir. 
We proved that they. Oh, shit, actually. Damn it. I proved that aliens don't exist. Damn it. Yeah, you already proved they don't exist. Uh, you convinced well, me with your argument. That's true. But at least we know that Marlon Brando is also an overrated, shitty actor. Scumbag. Too. An absolute scumbag. A horrible human. We actually did prove that, I think. We did. We've changed the facts of life on this podcast now. That's a uh, podcast altering award show we had last week. See, that's why I should get some points back for the award show, because I think I actually did prove that Marlon Brando isn't a good person. I think you, tongue-in-cheek, proved that aliens didn't exist. Like, you didn't believe it. The whole point of the exercise was to get each other to see the point of view that the other person was making. Well, yeah, we did, we did our best. That's all I can say. Yeah. Anyway, the missing time of Raul Duke and Dr. Gonzo includes... Acts such as terrorizing the maid <laughs> of the hotel, trying mm-hmm. to buy a monkey at the at the uh, carnival, vandalizing the rental car that they're in, and being a general menace to the public. Yeah, basically just horrifying and and menacing every single person they come in contact with. I think he says later, burning the locals, screwing the help, violating every rule of, of Vegas, pretty much. The worst of it happens, there's two scenes in particular that are especially bad. The one that gets me, man, is when he's driving and he pukes on the gar- the car next to him and he's trying oh, to yeah. sell him heroin. And I would fucking murder that guy. My God. Uh, and he's just like leaning out and he's saying, like, he can't understand anything he's saying. He's just like, which actually through a lot of this movie, if, unless you really pay attention, you can't understand like. There's a oh, lot with of... the subtitles off, you can't tell what, yeah, yeah. what Dr. Gonzo was saying. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because like he's just emulating Hunter Thompson's voice, and Hunter has like that really specific speech pattern and uh, doesn't really enunciate real well. But it makes it hard to understand exactly what's said in the dialogue. But you get the point of what's going on. But when, then when you actually find out and connect what they're actually saying with the dialogue, it all kind of makes sense, but... It's just hard to understand or hear what they're saying. If you're driving and someone's trying to sell you heroin and puking on your car, what are you doing? Uh, if they puke on my car, I'm going to be pretty pissed off. You're going to like cut them off in traffic or are you just going to let them go? What are you going like, to do? First of all, I would never hang right next to them like they did. As soon as the guy sees somebody puking out of their car, I'm going to either drive past them or let them go ahead of me. Yeah, that's where I'm at too. But I'm trying to get you to act real tough, like like you've been doing all season, and say that oh, you run these dudes off dude, the road. And beat I'd, have, them up. I'd have cut him off and then pulled him out of his car and pulled his shirt over his head like a hockey jersey. There you go. Shit out of <laughs> Thank you. That's what I was looking for. Okay, that's what. Yeah, that's what I'd do. Tough guy. Yeah. But but this car full of squares. <laughs> that that's what I wrote down. It's just a car full of squares, and they don't do shit to Duke and Gonzo for for puking on their car. Well, he gets angry and says he's going to do something. Finally, it's too much, and he's like, I'll kill you, I'll kill you. But he doesn't do it. But he doesn't do anything. And then the worst of all the scenes is when they go to the diner, and they commit this sexual assault, basically, in a robbery against the waitress there. Actually pretty scumbaggy. Yeah, he cuts the phone line whenever the waitress is kind of rude to him. He demands that she give him an entire pie, and then he, like, stuffs some bills down well, the front of her throat. Well, let's be specific about what happens. So he says, can I get two ice waters with ice? And and he's, like, kind of being rude about it. And she goes and grabs it and hands it to him, and he hands her a napkin, and she and it has something written on it. And she 
reads it and turns around. She goes, what the fuck is this? And we see it and it says backdoor beauty question mark. <laughs> and I don't know exactly what the reference is, but I can draw some conclusions. What is, and, what's the conclusion you're drawing? Well, the conclusion that I was drawing was that maybe she enjoys, you know, a certain type of sexual activity. What, that, what kind of sex? Uh, anal sex, if you want me to say it. <laughs> is that what you want? Well, if we have to sit here and listen to you clinking your fucking drink the whole time, we can at least hear you say she enjoys <laughs> anal sex. All right, well then, clink, clink. She, uh, he's asking her if she enjoys <laughs> anal sex. Cheers to that. There you go. So, so well, but then she's like, I don't have to take anything from a spick pimp, and she spits on him. And he arrives there, he goes, anybody knows anything knows that. So he says something, she's like, I'm going to call the cops, get the fuck out of here. And he's like, yo, you want to call the cops? So he walks over the phone, cuts the phone off of the, cuts the cord of the phone off and brings the phone over to her and hands it to her. And from that moment on, she's just kind of frozen in fear. And then he's like, oh, how much for that pie? And she says, 35 cents. He's like, no, for the whole pie. And he goes and buys the whole pie, takes the money and stuffs it in her blouse between her tits and then walks off and Duke kind of starts to walk off and take his dinner, but then he leaves his dinner. And nothing I don't know funny what, about this scene at all, right? No, nothing funny at all. Not at all. No, but uh, I don't think it's meant to be funny, but, uh, but why, what's the point of it? Yeah. What is it meant to do then? Like what's, what's the point of this other than maybe to show the absolute worst of, of these guys? Like this is, this is the climax of the movie in a way. Yeah. Well, the climax, I think, yeah, I guess the climax is... There is no climax to this movie, really. Well, the the adrenochrome trip, so it's part of that. It, it finishes it off, but it's just kind of, I think, concluding the the depths that this drug-fueled adventure has taken them to. Yeah, so they've reached the lowest depths now, and they've, they're starting to commit violent assault on the general public, on service workers, again. The poor service workers, man, they just... Taking it right on the yeah, from these yeah. two guys. As a service as a service worker, I can't get behind any of this. I can't well, defend it. We could probably name at least twenty people that were severely negatively impacted service workers by these two guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. So then that's the end of the reminiscen or the uh, reminiscence or either one of those words. Reminiscing? That's the end of the reminiscing. Reminiscence. I think that's probably a word. Yeah, that works. That's the end of Duke reminiscing and remembering the adrenochrome trip. And finally, the final scene here is he's got to get Dr. Gonzo to the airport. Yeah. And he's never missed. He's never missed a flight, he says. Yeah. So if this is the real climax, this is horrible. I don't. What a stupid scene. He just drives across the desert. Well, yeah. So once again, they run into Christina Ricci, which they already did this with the. uh, with, with the uh, hitchhiker. Yeah, the hitchhiker character. So it's like he's driving across intersections through fences to get into the airport and he drops him off and gets him on the plane and like they have this special little moment where they say something. He mugs yeah. for the camera for a second because he does mug for the camera quite a few times on this. In yeah, a breaking a the fourth wall sense. They, a li- they yeah, a little bit, a little bit. And then yeah, that pretty much rounds it out. That's the yeah. end of the movie. What a weird and pointless finish to the movie yeah it's got some like philosophical dialogue there going on where he talks about there he goes uh one of god's creatures uh actually it's one of my it's one of my quotes so i, I wrote it down so save the, well go ahead and give the quote yeah the quote, give the, the quote i got enough quotes i can say he's like 
A high-powered mutant of some kind. Never even considered for mass production. Too weird to live and too rare to die. He's talking about Dr. Gonzo. And I just think that's really interesting to think about, like, certain types of people are just built different. There's no model really like them. Yeah. Well, I guess you could say that about Dr. Gonzo. You could say a lot of things about Gonzo. Yeah. Uh, he's definitely a violent criminal and, and a basic, basically a horrible dude from everything we see in this movie. But I guess Duke saw something else in him. Yeah, well, he was his partner in crime. Yeah, and for Duke's part, he was no saint either. But he was yeah. not nearly as bad morally as the, as the doctor. Well, I don't think the movie's trying to paint anyone in a good light. It's not about them being right. In fact, it's mostly about them being in the wrong and getting away with it. And I think they say at one point, he's like, the only hope now is that uh, nobody with any sense to bring the hammer down on us would believe that we've actually done all this stuff. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Yeah, and that's like a, an ongoing like uh, th- um, question because he never really addressed like whether this actually happened, whether this is based on a true story. <laughs> I tend to believe like most of his writing, it's it's just embellished. Like it probably has some truth ar- around it, but it's just an embellished version of it. Yeah, I'd say most of this isn't true, and it's probably hammed up or talked up. Yeah, so to like make it suitable for a story. Yeah, Hunter Thompson was notorious for like creating some wild drama around every situation. All that really happened in this movie was a journalist and his attorney went to two events, covered them and came home. Wrecked two hotel rooms and wrecked some hotel rooms. Yeah. But instead they turned it into a two hour drug fueled, you know, romp where it was somehow entertaining despite having almost no purpose whatsoever. I mean, it it had a small message, but not from a traditional sense at all. Yeah, the ludicrousness of what goes on is what is the entertainment of the movie. Like the things that they're doing are so ludicrous and so wild that it makes you just impressed with how off the wall these guys are. So it's going to make for an interesting score when that time comes up. But before we get to the scores, I know you've got quite a few favorite lines here from Fear and Loathing. So Mm -hmm. what do we got? Uh, so at the beginning, he talks about we were in the polo lounge, uh, yada, 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 hiding from this foul year of our Lord, 1971. Uh, oh, when he spills the cocaine when they're driving down the road and he goes, did you see what God did to us, man? He says, God didn't do that. You did it. I knew it. You're a fucking narcotics agent. <laughs> like, that's the type of thing I talk about with Hunter Thompson. Like, it couldn't have just been like a spill. It, it's a, it's like, you spilled it, and let me connect it further, even deeper, and turn it into a big thing. Um, oh, and when he's, on, when he's on the drug, and he's got the knife, and he's chasing him around, he's, he's like, leaving. He's like, smoke some grass, dude. Take it easy. Whatever. He's like, I'm going to go wash the car. And he's like, one thing you learn after years of dealing with drugs, never turn your back on a drug. Or one thing you learn with years of dealing with drug people. Drug is, people. Drug people is that you can turn your back on a person, but never turn your back on a drug. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. And a true one. Yeah, yeah. It's like if people are under the influence of drugs, they're not their normal selves, so don't expect them to act normally. So beware. And then there was a one we already said. There was a fantastic universal sense that whatever we were doing was right, that we were winning. And that's when he's talking about the uh, 60s and the counter uh, protests and things of that. Oh, and he's talking about Lucy. This, this line cracked me up for some reason. This time when I watched it, he goes... She came all the way down from, what's that town? Montana? Yeah, Montana. 
Yeah, he thinks it's a town. Like he's, the attorney he's, doesn't even know that yeah, Montana's a state. He's supposed to be like this wise guru to her. And he's like, she came all the way from that, uh, what's that town called? Montana? Montana, yeah. <laughs> uh, that cracked me up for some reason. Um, you took too much, too much, you took too much. The way he says that cracks me up. I think we've said that one on the podcast before. Yeah, so, that's somewhere a, in there. That's a famous one. And then the final one I just read. A high-powered mutant of some kind, never even considered for mass production, too weird to live, and too rare to die. Well, somehow we had none of the same lines. Because I could have quoted this entire movie, and I actually cut down a, a bunch of my favorite lines. Yeah. To the ones that I say sometimes throughout daily life. Mm-hmm. And so one of the ones is, our vibrations were getting nasty. But why? Yeah, that's so good. Anytime you're having some kind of confrontation, you got to wonder why. Yeah. Then there is, if a thing's worth doing, it's worth doing right, which is just yeah. a good good way to live despite... Uh, In general, yeah. Despite how shitty this podcast has been for the last two years. We're, <laughs> we haven't done it right for two years, but it's still worth doing, I'll say that. Yeah, it's worth doing, uh, even if it's wrong. If a thing's worth doing, it's worth doing at least halfway mediocre. <laughs> Hey, you know what we do right is we do it a lot. Well, that's right. We do. We, we keep, we doing, keep it. doing it. That's the right thing. And even though nobody's listening at this point in the podcast and everybody's uh, just switched it off or turned to something else, we're still finishing strong. That's right. Well, we're finishing. I don't know about strong, but we're yeah, finishing. By God. And also, here's one one of my favorites, one of the famous ones. Buy the ticket, take the ride. So you get, mm, yeah. you get what you pay for or uh, you reap what you sow. It's all the same thing there, I think. Yeah. Then there is, anytime I'm sweating when no one else is sweating, I say, I've never been able to properly explain myself in this climate. I like when Duke says that. And then, I don't know how this one applies, really, but I always find a way to get it in there. When people ask me what day it is and someone else answers, they'll say, what day is it? And then the third party will say, Friday, Saturday? And me, in the background, will say, more, more like, like Sunday. More like Sunday. And I don't yeah. know what that even means, but I always say that when I can. <laughs> That's funny because I do that too, and nobody ever has gotten the reference, I don't think. And I don't even get the reference. Like, what happens? What's the difference if it's yeah, Sunday? Yeah, I don't Monday? even know. I don't know why he means it. Saturday, Sunday? <laughs> more like Sunday. More like Sunday. So I don't get it, but I like it. Yeah. And then the last one is when they're trying to park their car, he says, Is this not a reasonable place to park? When they're, when they're on the sidewalk parking yeah. their car. You're on a sidewalk. This is a sidewalk. What? Well, That's not a reasonable place to park. Yeah. Well, that, that does it for my favorite lines and yours as well. So let's get into this one here. What kind of grade are we going to give? It's a very uh, contentious movie among critics. Mm, so yeah, yeah. How are you, we going to go with this one? You go ahead and give your grade. I want, I'm interested to see where you go. All right. Well, normally... I like to be as objective as I can when we're reviewing these movies. But I don't talk about it a whole lot, but I did have a very short career as a journalist myself. Mm-hmm. And my style of journalism, basically just out of laziness, was gonzo journalism. Because yeah. I would go and I would do the things I did and kind of insert myself into the story and write it from a very subjective perspective rather than what you're supposed to. So I have a particular fondness for gonzo journalism. Yeah. And in this review, 
I'm going to throw objectivity out the window. I normally would give this movie probably a 12 or a 13. Wow. It's, it's not a great movie, but I really enjoy this movie and it does something for me. And I'm going to be a little unfair and biased in this score. And I'm going to say it's a 16 out of 20. Mm. I respect that because if I were grading it, I would grade it exactly. If I were grading it like that, uh, unobjectively, I would grade it exactly like that. But the funny thing is, is I decided to go the opposite direction and grade it objectively. And after watching it, I was like, I really understand and after kind of analyzing, even though I knew this already in the back of my head, like I know it's not, a, it's a movie that not everybody's going to enjoy. And that even three quarters of the way through the movie, people are like, all right, this was fun, but I'm kind of done with it now. But I love the movie so much. And I'm so influenced by Hunter Thompson. Like he's one of my favorite people. Like he's up there with Brando on my list of people that I like. Like it's uh, Bob Dylan, Hunter Thompson, Marlon Brando. And Neil Young. And, no, Neil Young's on there. Uh, let's see who, who's the who's the final piece of the puzzle there. Oh, Bo Jackson. Bo Jackson and, makes your Mount Rushmore of yeah, all-time great humans. Of like the people that I've just studied their lives and looked up to, those are like the four, right? Uh, and Hunter Thompson makes that list. So like I can't obje- I can't objectively grade. Well, I can't objectively grade this, which I've done. I could, and I would have graded it probably sixteen, seventeen, right there. But I gave it. The exact grade that you said you would have given it, had you graded objectively, I gave it a 12, a 20. Because rewatching it, I'm just like, this movie is perfect for me, and not everybody's going to get it. And like, it's perfect for a niche audience, but it's so disconnected, disjointed. There's no through line, there's no real story going on except the hijinks of these two characters. As far as that goes, it's kind of. Um, if you weren't into it and, you, and you, think about if you didn't do drugs and in fact didn't like drugs at all and thought drugs were horrible. Oh, this movie is This awful. movie you're, would just be like You're never going to make it through bomb. this movie. You'd be like, this is the dumbest movie of all time and stupid and like, I don't know what's going on. I don't get it. I don't, if you were like one of those cops from the convention, you would hate it. So I chose to go objective and uh, lower it down and it's still rewatchable. But I think I could have even gone lower and gone down to like 11, maybe even. I think we could have gone below 10. I think people could not watch this movie and not yeah. really miss out on anything. Yeah. Because there's people a, that, that just aren't going to get this, you know, and a lot of people that aren't going to get it. I don't but, even really get it. But like on a scale of my movies, like it's got to be an 18 to 20 in that range because I've watched it so many times in my life. It's one of the, it's got to be in my top five, I would say. Favorite of all time? I would think it's in my top five. And you gave it a 12 out of 20. That's a very fair score of you. Yeah. Well, I went the opposite direction because, like, I wanted to, I wanted to, to say, I wanted to say 17, 18. Like, that would, I thought would have been a fair grade for it. But, you know, like, the amount of joy this is, this movie's brought to my life and the amount of, like, studying it I've done, not just, uh, but, and it also incorporates Johnny Depp, who was an actor that I, definitely sought after his movies and studied him as an actor and like it incorporates all of that i love the acting like the performance with him and uh benicio del toro is just fabulous like oh, yeah. they, they really steal the show the two of them though i oh, enjoy yeah. watching benicio because 
He's so disgusting. <laughs> His character is so foul. But that's what's so impressive. Like he picked, he gained, like he's a really sexy dude. And he gained all this weight and became like fat and out of shape and sloppy to do this. And then the next movie he did, he was back in shape and slim and skinny again. Yeah, that it is an impressive acting performance. It's just gross to watch. Yeah. So I don't know. Like it's, it's, it's a hard movie to grade for me. I went objective. You went unobjective. I kind of like the way we did that. Yeah, I do too. It was a little bit backward there, and it, yeah. it worked out. It's the best of the Terry Gilliam movies or no? Of the oh. three that we've covered. We'd have to what's, – what's the highest grade of the Gilliam movies we've got so far? Uh, what Ranted Taco-wise, I think now Brazil. Brazil. Yeah, Brazil still is the winner, I think. We both gave 12 Monkeys a very mediocre score. Mm-hmm. And you gave this one a pretty mediocre score too. Yeah, I think Brazil probably got the best grade out of it. I think on average, Brazil lands higher. Well, it's got on Rotten Tomatoes like ninety nine percent or something. Yeah, right. So I, maybe it does go to Brazil. I don't know. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Uh, Brazil is an interesting, strange movie. Well, there's one more Terry Gilliam movie that I really do like, and it is one of my probably top ten favorite movies. And we'll get to that some other day. Not right away. You what know what movie is that? Monty mm-hmm. Python and the Holy Grail. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Love, love that movie. But he was an actor in that. He, did he direct that? I don't know if he directed it, but he's in it. I mean, I, I like consider he was, it one of his things. Was he a member of, the, of Monty Python? Like he was a member of the troupe, right? I assume so, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Well, we are, we're not going to do that next week, though. Next week, we are going to step out of the desert and step into the wild. Ooh. And that's going to be the story of Christopher McCandless, I think is his name. You know, into the wild, the guy that, Oh, okay. Yeah. The guy that served his whole life. And then he like went and lived in Alaska. I didn't didn't realize that the the into the wild was the actual name reveal. I thought you were like, (laughs) no, that's the movie. It was a perfect segue. You blew it. (laughs) You blew it. No, I, I set you up for it, and you just like didn't get it. It went right over you, your head. You teed me up, and I completely whiffed it. You missed the tee, yeah. Yeah, well, shit. Do it again. Do it again. All right. Next week, we're going to go... Shit. Next week, we're going to come out of the desert and go into the wild. Oh, my God. Into the oh, wild. Oh, that movie's oh, crazy. Holy oh. cow. Oh, God. <laughs> There we go. Nice, good. What a uh, great nailed, reaction. Nailed that one. No. What a great reaction to the movie selection. Yeah, that was completely authentic. <laughs> I'll just leave both takes of you fucking up my intro to the next movie in there. Yeah, please do. Please do. Anyway, next week, Into the Wild. Welcome to the podcast, Emil Hirsch. Mm, and he had so much potential. What happened to him? Where'd he go? I don't know, man. I really like him in a lot of movies, or I think I do, but... Maybe yeah, I, I really thought he was going to be like the next big thing, like the next uh, Johnny Depp, Joaquin Phoenix type, and he kind of just faded away. Well, let's get into some more of his movies, maybe after this one, and maybe we can figure out why he's not still around doing yeah. stuff. Well, I'm excited to rewatch this, but mainly because I, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be able to just rip into this guy for being like a white suburban fucking overprivileged asshole. Yeah, I've I've yet to discover if I really love this movie or if I just love the soundtrack. 
Because it might have oh, the best soundtrack of all dude. time, but I don't know if I really like the movie that We much. didn't even mention the soundtrack to this movie, and it's spectacular. Fear and Loathing? Yeah. You think it's spectacular? Yeah. Raindrops on kittens and... These are a few of my favorite things. Then the blood splatter. Yeah, well, yeah, that, like, that part's you, cool, but the rest of it's just like casino rock that no, I've heard no, like every day for the last fifteen. But it years. works really well. Like even the ending with Jumpin' Jack Flash. No, uh, the beginning and the ending are perfect. Everything in between is just like whatever. It's just casino music. No, it works well. You got the white rabbit scene in there with the with that. You got Tom uh, Jones. The it's not unusual. And like the scenes, that, like the scene, the casino sign start scrolling up for that. Yeah, She's that's like lady. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, it's all popular music, but it, it fits really well. It's all right. Next week's music is way better than this, though. I'll say that. Everyone says that about this movie because what's his fuck from uh, the, the grunge guy did the soundtrack, and I it's, didn't think it was that good. Oh, God. Don't say that. I was just about to warn you not to say that to me, and then you just said it right there. <laughs> I was, actually, just, I was literally about I just, to say, if you don't like this, don't actually, tell me because it's I just beautiful. Re- I just remember not being as impressed as I thought I was supposed to be because uh, Eddie Vedder did it. I really don't give a shit that Eddie Vedder did it. Like, I, I don't like or dislike Eddie Vedder. I'd say I lean toward liking more than dislike, but it's not like him doing it made it amazing. It was just, it's amazing music. It's really good. Well, I'll give it a, I'll give it a collegiate listen because you know me. I'm going to come with a fair opinion. I'll I'll state my opinion whether it's uh, right or wrong or whether it agrees with you or not. So I'll give it a fair trial. But I'm just saying my initial take was the music was supposed to impress me more, I feel like, and it didn't. Uh, we'll see and every that. And everyone rode the movies nuts because it was Eddie Vedder did. Oh, Eddie Vedder did the whole soundtrack himself. And I'm like, yeah, it sounds like he needed help. Oh, man. Ouch. Oh. <laughs> oh. All right, next week will be a contentious podcast. I can already tell. So, right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Can I do the exit line as Eddie Vedder? Yes, but first, can I say, "Hail to your mother"? Oh, hail to your mother! Hail to your mother! Oh, hail to your mother! <laughs> Not an Eddie Vedder fan at all, are you? Not really. He's got a unique style. Yeah, I don't like it. Yeah, that's kind of like Dylan. I, I didn't that. get. I didn't get into. You shut your fucking mouth, okay? That's just. That's just aiming at my personal. Uh, uh, he's clearly more talented. That's than just Dylan targeting every the capacity. That's just targeting the family jewels. That's like a kick in the nuts right there, okay? I mean, I'm not even a. Huge now you're just trying to fan. fight. Exactly. Now you're just fighting. I'm just cheap. saying, there's nothing about him that's less talented than Bob Dylan. Not a single. Okay. Guy. Yeah. Well, you've lost the podcast. In the last, in the closing seconds, you think I lost it? You just lost it right there. You just said that Eddie Vedder is every bit as good as Bob Dylan. No, I said there was nothing about him that was less talented. So yeah. I didn't say every bit as good. Actually, I'm let's just he's way better. let's just analyze some lyrics from the two of them, and I'm sure we'll figure that one out real quick. All right, we'll do that on the next episode because this is going too long, way yeah, too you've, long. You've ruined another podcast. Thank you very much, Mason. We're well, which episode did I lose, next week or this week? Yes. Both already. <laughs> All right, well, fair enough then.
Eddie Vetter, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Eddie Vetter. I'm going to give him a fair shot. I'm not going to judge him. I'm trying not to judge him. Hell yeah. Don't judge him until you see him. And we'll see him next week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We will see you next week as well. Bye-bye, y'all. Do that. Do the uh, do our jingle in the Eddie Vedder voice too. <laughs> Hero one of movers from Webster to Morocco. Who needs answers, rattles when you count around Santa Claus? Everyone loves movies from Webster to Morocco. Who needs rotten tomatoes when you've got the rancid tacos? This podcast is brought to you by West Virginia Pepperoni Rolls.